Last week, we began working our way through John 7, 14 through 24, where Jesus is exposing the wicked hearts of the Jewish people, the Jewish crowd, who in their desperate state, with terribly poor judgment, accuse him of having a demon. He tells them, and he tells us in this text, to not judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. He's calling them to acknowledge their poor judgment and begin to exercise right judgment, to no longer judge poorly, but begin to judge rightly. Now, let's clear up a common misconception from the beginning of our study. Often the term judge is confused with the term condemn. And so people will say, you know, you really shouldn't judge, or who are you to judge? And then they'll get really self-righteous and say, well, who are you to cast the first stone? And often it's the person who has little or, or maybe even no understanding of what those passages mean or what the context of those passages is. But I want to ask you to look with me at James 2 for just a minute, because often it's James who is abused in an effort to prevent people from exercising any kind of discernment at all. And so the concept of judging is done away with, or there's an attempt to do away with it as if it's somehow bad. Well, in James 2, beginning with verse 8, James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is really the basis that underlies legitimate, sound, biblical, spirit-filled judgment. And so the easy part, I guess, in this effort is to communicate the difference between judgment and condemnation. Obviously, we're not to condemn anyone. Ultimately, we don't have the power to condemn anyone, but often we can easily have a condemning spirit or even condemning words towards someone. Judgment, on the other hand, is different. But let's just say that by the time James gets to the end of this section, it's pretty clear what kind of judgment he is addressing. I will never forget, years ago, I was sitting in a, an elders meeting between the elders of two different churches. This was many years ago, not with the anchor. And we were attempting to determine how to deal with a man who had committed pedophilia for nearly a decade. And the elder, one of the elders from the other church looked at me and said, Todd, mercy triumphs over judgment. So I said, okay, tell that to the next child he molests. And I also asked him to communicate to me what he believed about the context of that passage, and he had no idea. All he knew is it was somewhere in the Bible, and it must surely mean that he could conveniently use it to prevent anyone from exercising judgment in a way that might be inconvenient for him. And this is often the way the concept of judgment is viewed. So again, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So let's Nail down right now the idea that in James, he's not doing away with the concept of judgment. He's addressing the fact that there is often a lack of love when judgment is exercised. And again, this is going to be really obvious by the time we get through it. We could almost just read it. 
I'll give a little commentary as we go. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, he's already addressing the misuse of one's cerebral abilities. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. His point is, everybody's guilty. Often there are those who exercise judgment against others as if they themselves are not guilty. You see what's being disclosed here? Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The idea that you've been freed from the penalty of the law. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Stop there for a minute. Judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. This probably makes you think of the slave whose immeasurable debt was completely forgiven, who went back to the one who was indebted to him with a much smaller debt, choked him out, and put him in prison. This is the pervasive mindset of the self-righteous person who does not live by grace, much less mercy. He's committed to the idea that he somehow achieved God's favor with his efforts. The more common practice in the evangelical church today is achieving God's favor by one's self-righteous prayer. And so this call to acknowledge, here we are, mercy triumphs over judgment, is to acknowledge the reality that many times self-righteous judgment is displaced, it's dispelled, it's eliminated when one legitimately embraces mercy. This is a parenthetical effort on my part to get your minds in the right place with regard to what judgment is and what judgment is not. So if you have experienced the dilemma that some would intend to superimpose upon your life and your heart uh, to think that somehow all judgment is bad, then hopefully uh, you are more equipped now to be able to go to the Scripture and say, well, let's talk about what's really being spoken of here. Last week, we looked a little bit at Matthew 7. We'll look at it again today. But Matthew 7 is maybe the more common passage that some will go to because it sounds like Jesus is saying, don't judge. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is very similar to what James is saying here. Do not judge lest you be judged. We'll look at the context more in a little bit. So this is not to say that mercy and judgment here in James, it's not to say that mercy and judgment are mutually exclusive like some would have you think. It is to say that mercy defeats sinful, prejudicial judgment. James goes on in verse 14 to say, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now you're familiar with this context. Uh, can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This should bring to your mind what Paul tells the Thessalonians. He who does not work does not eat. And what was going on with the Thessalonians is that they were hyper-focused on the return of Christ and therefore just quit their jobs. They just quit working. They just said, we're just going to wait till Jesus returns. And so they became a burden to others. How in the world can someone be faithful to the word of God if they refuse to work? It is absolutely impossible. You can't help others if you yourself are not working with gainful employment. It's impossible. So also, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? The person who claims to have faith in the Lord but does not operate based on the commands of Scripture proves that his faith is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let me just tell you something. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of judgment going on here. You can't know these things about yourself and about others if you're not willing to exercise some judgment. And so you understand now why, why James has prefaced this by exposing the hypocritical and unkind spirit, the unloving spirit of sinful judgment. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And, and his point is that, yes, he, he was. It was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. What was reckoned to him as righteousness? Belief. Regeneration comes in the heart. It comes by belief in God and what he has accomplished, not by works. But then verse 22, it sounds like a contradiction, but what James is actually doing here is helping us understand that while faith is that by which a person is reckoned righteous, that faith will certainly result in works. So where Paul says that we are justified by faith alone, where James here says that you're justified by works, they're talking about two different angles of the same issue. James is pointing out the fact that you are not going to be justified in anybody's eyes if you think that you can operate by faith and not have works. So your faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. What does that mean? He's saying that if your faith is genuine saving faith, then it's being completed by the works that are resultant of that faith. The scripture was fulfilled, verse 23, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So while some would say that James is contradicting Paul, no, he just reiterated what Paul said. Verse 24, 
uh, the end of verse 23, sorry, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Does it, doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Well, it's not. He's just reiterated what Paul has said. His point is that in the eyes of man, you are not justified, and man matters. How do you know whether or not you're right before the Lord. It's based upon the people of God and what the legitimate people of God have to say about that. That's why I talked earlier about church membership. It's not in the hands of every individual person to determine whether or not he is a believer. Lots and lots, literally billions, literally billions of people throughout the ages have determined based on their own criteria that they were believers, and they were wrong. They could have known that they were wrong if they had subjected themselves to the true church. But the person who has determined that he himself is his own standard of truth often doesn't want to acknowledge that. And for you and me, our standard of truth has to be the Scripture. And the Scripture requires that there is a deep, saturated, lifelong involvement in the one another's. There is no such thing as autonomous, singular Christianity. The buzz term back in the 50s and 60s and 70s was that there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. And that's well said. How are you affirmed? By the body of Christ. This is why when we planted a church, we said, we're not going to just go plant a church. We're not just going to, as a group of people, say, you know what? We need a good church. Let's go start a church. That is not a biblical blueprint. We said, if a legitimate local church will lay hands on our elders, or elder at the time, and launch us as a local church, we will. And if we can't, if we can't rest on that local body for that affirmation, we won't do it. By God's grace, Grace Community Church gave full affirmation to that. The men that installed me as the elder of the Anchor Bible Church were men that I'd known for nearly 20 years. And in the same way where James here speaks of this idea of being justified by works, the point is that when other people look on and they say, "Um, you know, you've got no fruit. It means something. And so whatever your previous criteria by which you determined that you were a believer was, it must be examined. It must be examined according to Scripture. And too many folks will say, you know what, I just test things by Scripture. And they really don't. Because what they mean by that is that they go home and they look at the Bible alone. And they give zero consideration to what the historical church has actually believed about what the Bible says and means. So again, they've made themselves the standard of truth. So this call to judge is not only okay, it's imperative. Not you, not me, not anybody throughout the history of the world has been qualified to determine whether or not he himself or she herself is in fact in Christ. We all bear the need of sitting under the scrutiny of the body. There are over 60 one another's in the Bible. And every one of those is a call to be subject 
not just the people in general, but to the body of Christ. This passage in James goes on to say in verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab was approved. She didn't handle that situation flawlessly. In fact, she lied. But the assembly of God could approve her. Why? Because she was justified by faith. She believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to her as righteousness, and her life revealed that and her willingness to trust the Lord. Well, in John 9, John 9, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. That's kind of an indictment on those who would say that judgment is not right, only God can judge. No, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It's a little bit of a play on words here, but his point is that there are those who see well enough to observe reality but don't understand it. And as you probably know, he's talking specifically about the Pharisees. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What he's pointing to is the need for people to start living in reality. that those who do not see may see. In other words, those who are spiritually blind, that they would be given eyesight. But those who see or sort of think they see would recognize that they're actually blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Just know that this is a very sarcastic question. Are we blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you think, wait a minute, why didn't he just say, yep, you're blind? Because as I said earlier, What he's pointing out here is that they are blind in one sense, but not in the other. Like in Romans 1, the person who calls himself an atheist is not an atheist, he's a liar. He wants to believe God doesn't exist, so he will no longer have accountability to God. But he knows God exists. God has written his existence on that man's heart and in creation. So Jesus said to them, if you were blind, that's an implication that they're not totally blind. In other words, they know enough truth. If you were blind, you would have no guilt, right? If you had no awareness of truth, you wouldn't be guilty. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Paul uses the terminology in Romans 1 and 2 without excuse, What Jesus is saying here about the Pharisees is that they are without excuse. They're guilty because they have enough knowledge to know better than to act the way they act and treat people the way they do. But again, Jesus here is calling for right judgment. He's calling for right judgment. The Pharisees exercise wrong judgment, and that mindset, that self-righteous attitude permeated the Jewish people. They followed in their footsteps. Well, by way of review, last week we said under point number one, the one who wishes to do God's will discerns God's teaching. Verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up 
to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And similar to the crowds in Galilee in Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so Jesus exercising authority was displaying the fact that he and the Father were one. He was exercising the authority of the Father. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 5, 19 says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And as you know, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders were bearing down on him because they wanted to believe, they chose to believe, they wanted others to believe that they were in the father, but Jesus was a false prophet. So by doing everything they could to attack him, the right defense on his part was simply to point out the reality that he came in representation of the authority of the Father. Now, they didn't want to hear that. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And this is where he goes on to explain to Philip that Philip should have known better. Philip wanted to see the Father, and Jesus saying, you see me, you see the Father. And his point was that I am in unison with the Father. What I say is a literal and accurate representation of the authority of the Father. And then this is really what you might call the primary truth statement by which we got that point. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This is an indictment on the Pharisees. You don't know that my teaching is of God? What's the implication? You're not interested in the will of God. The Pharisees were about the Pharisees. They only wanted to be exalted John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we've said over and over, this is an intrinsic doctrinal matter in this text where Jesus continues to broaden the line between the believers and the unbelievers, the true disciples and the false disciples. This is the critical doctrine. It's the doctrine of the sovereignty of the Father in drawing those who will come to the Son. And only those that the Father draws to the Son will come unto the Son. And we've said about this that truth is self-authenticating. So what we mean by that is that because God is truth, because truth comes from God, pure truth, undefiled truth, perfect truth, truth is a representation of the perfect, pure character of the Father. And if the Pharisees had legitimately been devoted to that truth, they would have seen that what Jesus was teaching was not only parallel to that, not only congruous with it, it was exactly the same thing. Truth is self-authenticating. And at the point where 
I see that someone is willing to grapple with truth, then I know we're on a pathway here that could potentially be helpful. But when a person belittles the significance of the Word of God, the guy that I was interacting with this last week referred to the Torah. Okay, so that's a signal. It's typically an indication that he doesn't believe that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. He would say there is one Testament, and that thing you call the New Testament is not even real. I don't have a problem dealing with that person, with that mindset, because there is plenty of truth in the Torah by which to challenge him with regard to his standard of truth. Oh, and by the way, multiple times the New Testament affirms the Torah. I didn't get very far with this guy because his response when I asked, I think the fifth time, what is your standard of truth? Do you believe that the Torah is infallible? Do you believe that it is, in fact, flawlessly voracious? Not voracious, voracious, veracity. Do you believe that? And here was his response. I believe it as a metaphor. That's all I needed to know. It's not the word of God to him. It's certainly not the perfect word of God. You gotta know what you're dealing with. If you're not watching the Andy Stanley debacle unfold, let me be clear, Andy Stanley is a false teacher. He has made it clear, he has said plainly that Christianity was not based upon the scripture. As I told you a couple weeks ago, he's now saying, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. He's even saying that our hope is not based in the word of God. It's not based in the scripture. It's based on the resurrection. How do we know what we know about the resurrection? It's from the word of God. The fact that the resurrection is in fact a historical reality is helpful, but we don't believe what we believe based on historical evidence. We believe it based upon the work of the Holy Spirit to use his perfect word. The word of God is the singular basis of Christianity. This is why when people start talking like God is speaking to them, that's nearly blasphemous. It's dangerous at best because they're attempting to say that the word of God is not sufficient. The canon is not closed. It's not complete. It's not what God has said about it. And they want to add to it. Why? Because it's not sufficient in their minds. Truth being self-authenticating, it's no secret why Jesus would say in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Think of it. Every time someone, if you've done your best to challenge them to respond to the question, what's your standard of truth? Every time someone has responded with something that points back to their own ability to think through things, this is Jesus talking about them. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. It was many years back when it was very obvious to me that my standard of truth had to be the word of God, not my own ability to assess the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's not the other way around. You and I are not to sit in judgment of the word of God. You say, well, how do I avoid that? Well, here's the way to avoid that. First of all, don't do this. 
Don't be the person who, you know, has some kind of topic pop into their head or you see something online or you have a conversation and a theological issue becomes of interest to you. And so you start rifling through your concordance and you think, oh, and you find two or maybe even three verses and you go, got it. That's spiritual suicide. On the other hand, get a systematic theology that legitimately helps you think through that doctrinal matter from a spiritual basis. Start with this reality in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot discern them. You know, if you find yourself tripping up over biblical truth time and time and time again, and it's just getting frustrating... It's high time that you sit down with a qualified person, and by that I mean somebody who loves Jesus Christ and loves you. Somebody who will sit down with you and grapple with what the gospel is. I mentioned it this morning, we've put it in the bulletin the last several weeks, the most basic thing for you to do, friends, as a Christian, is to be able to explain how you were saved by the gospel. And I understand that sometimes that's difficult, especially if it's the first time you've ever done it, but it ought to be the most joyous thing you could possibly consider doing. Why did Jacob stand up here and talk to you this morning? He and I had a brief conversation in the kitchen. We talked about fear, you know, getting in front of people. And I said, you know what? The day I no longer fear talking in front of people is probably the day I should not do it anymore. The thing you want to pursue is fear of God and avoid the fear of man. I don't know anyone who's ever totally overcome that. But the reason that there's some fear, should be, in standing before you is because you love Christ, you want to be fed well, you want to learn how better to honor the Lord with your life, you want to be corrected, you even want to be rebuked. And the real issue for me comes down to the words from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66 too, where it says that the man of God trembles before the word of the Lord. He trembles before the word of the Lord. He doesn't want to get it wrong. He doesn't want to steer someone wrong. He doesn't want to be flippant or comedic in the pulpit. He doesn't want to make light of the eternal truth of the word of the Lord. But the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. It's very simple. That's who Jesus is talking about. You know, maybe you've never sat physically in a church where that goes on, but you've certainly seen something like that online. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. He wants to be corrected. He's not just about his own words. Verse 18 goes on to say, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus can speak the truth of the word of God with full confidence, with joy, with humility. He can say that which is difficult, that which is hard, and he can do it with full confidence because he knows it is going to glorify his Father, and he knows that there is no falsehood in it. Well, point two, the one who wishes to do his own will discerns poorly. So has not Moses given you the law, he says in verse 19, yet none of you keeps the law? 
he's dissecting the difference between the person who does what he does and says what he says for his own glory and the person who does what he does and says what he says for God's glory. And he's obviously pointing out the difference between himself and them. You know, his desire is to glorify the Father, to speak based on his Father's authority. Their desire is to speak on their own authority. And look at the disaster that that resulted in. You remember from 1 Samuel 15, I won't read the whole thing, but I want to go back to 1 Samuel 15, verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel knew he was lying because there were animals still present, the best of the animals, right? Not to mention the fact that King Agag was still breathing. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, can we get back to the real issue? And that is that the word was clear. The instructions were clear. It was black and white. It was obvious. The Lord's not interested in your post disobedience sacrifice. And you can apply this to your own life or the lives of others in so many, many ways. The person who continues to live in a way that is clearly disobedient to the Lord thinks that he somehow can overshadow that with some sort of self-effacing sacrifice. Some effort to do without something. And so he justifies his willingness to continue in that sin, specifically the sin of rejecting the word of God. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. His hope was that he would maintain favor with Samuel, public favor with Samuel, so as to maintain his kingship. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Back to the, the matter of judgment being necessary. You can't tell me that Samuel was not exercising judgment in Saul's life. Samuel loved God. He loved the people of Israel. He loved Saul. And Saul needed to be given the truth. In John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. This is Jesus. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, 
And so Jesus wastes no time here in declaring their rejection of the law of God. While they want to be known for adhering to the letter of the law, they show no interest in obeying the spirit of the law. You remember he said to them, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? It's not like you're unaware of what the law says. You might be trying to put your head in the sand, but you know the truth. Psalm 12, verse 6 really gives us a totally different mentality. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Why would we go anywhere else? Why would we entrust ourselves to anything else other than the pure word of God? In verse 17, Jesus has said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. God is truth. His word is truth. As we said last week, truth is self-authenticating. The one who desires to do God's will has the ability to discern teaching that is reflective of God's word. Go back to chapter 1 in John, chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, right? Certainly, this would have been on Jesus' mind that this statement had been made earlier. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And some want to say, some want to take this passage and twist it to say that Moses was all about the law and Jesus is all about grace and truth. He's not saying that at all. The point is that Moses' teaching on the law should have led to an understanding of grace and truth. Jesus' point is that if you had adhered to Moses' teaching, you would have seen me coming. If you believed in the grace and the truth that Moses taught, you would have seen me to be the culmination of that grace and truth. Back to John 5, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. You know, it could have been thought here that Jesus could be willing to accuse them to the Father, but he's saying, I don't need to. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And you can imagine they're thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, just as you said, our hope is in Moses. And clearly what Jesus is saying is you missed the point. While they had Moses' law, they were not keeping it. He says, has Moses not given you the law, yet none of you keeps it. So having declared their rejection of the word of the Lord, he now says, he now points out their obvious rejection of the sixth commandment. Verse 19 goes on to say, why do you seek to kill me? You're so committed to Moses. You're so committed to the law. Why do you seek to disobey the sixth commandment and kill me? John 5.18 says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Back at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So you think, how did they not 
know, or are they just denying it? What's going on here? The crowd says, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? While this is largely an effort on their part to dismiss the significance of his question about their efforts to kill him, it's more important to note that this is the crowd and not the Jewish leadership speaking here. It's the Pharisees who wish to have him killed. And uh, in a few weeks, we'll get to John chapter 8, verse 45, which says, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So this isn't the last time that he'll be accused of having a demon. In John 10, where his primary teaching emphasis is on his imminent death as a shepherd who will die for his sheep, they accuse him of having a demon, having spoken that theology. John 10, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane, why listen to him? The harder the doctrine gets, the more Jesus presses those who reject it. And the more they press him with the false accusation that he has a demon. Isn't it interesting? The more you see the sovereignty of God revealed in Scripture, the more the Lord himself is willing to expose the line between the believer and the unbeliever, and the more the unbelievers are willing to accuse him of being demonic, But there's a growing division within the crowd and the Jewish leaders. Verse 21 in John 10 says, Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there is this growing division. There are those who are being changed by truth. And if we were to look at this from a human perspective, and we certainly should, the difference is they're willing. They are willing to be taught. They are willing to hear and receive the pure word of God for what it says. John 7, 25 says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So what's happening is some of the people are starting to catch on that the Pharisees are Pharisees. They're actors. They're hypocrites. They're starting to ask good questions. Here he is speaking in front of all of Judea and they're not saying anything to him, maybe they know he's the real Christ. Maybe they don't want the real Christ. Well, verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. 
So they were astonished, not because he healed a man who for 38 years since birth was unable to walk. They were astonished because he told him to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. See, that's the self-righteousness of hyper-focus on a not-so-critical detail and missing the whole point of what Jesus had accomplished. Verse 22 in our text, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So circumcision wasn't originally given by Moses, but it was restated and required by Moses. They certainly would have been adhering to the Mosaic law that required circumcision, but circumcision wasn't originally given by Moses. It was given by Abraham or to Abraham, Genesis 17.10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So the dilemma Jesus posed here was which law takes precedence? Is the child to be circumcised on the eighth day, or is the Sabbath to be honored? Which is it? According to the Mishnah, the rabbinical writings of the Jewish people, the Mishnah and the Netarim, the Sabbath would take precedence. In verse 23, if on the Sabbath, Jesus says, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Let's do a little study on the Sabbath, shall we? Go with me to Matthew 12, verse 1. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So his point is to say that David and his men, understanding the point, the spirit of the Sabbath, did what was necessary to provide nourishment that they would survive. The same with Jesus and the disciples. There wasn't anything that was an infraction about their willingness to eat of grain in the field. That wasn't violating the Sabbath. Oh, but wait a minute. There are priests who violate the Sabbath greatly, and yet you consider them guiltless. Matthew 12, verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see that? They're doing in living color what we mean when we say that a person violates the spirit of the law and maintains the letter of the law. And they did it on purpose. They would use the letter of the law against others while they themselves were violating the spirit of the law. Do you do that? Luke 13, 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Let's just say Jesus is exercising judgment. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him." So they violated the Sabbath. The people to whom Jesus was speaking in this text in John 7, they violated the Sabbath on a regular basis with circumcision. If a child was born on a particular day and then the Sabbath were to fall eight days later, then they would circumcise the child and they would violate the Sabbath. Jesus did it one time according to their understanding of the Sabbath. Of course, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He couldn't break the Sabbath. If you haven't listened to our messages from John 5 on the Sabbath, in an effort to understand what it means to violate the Sabbath and what it doesn't mean to violate the Sabbath, it's very important that you go back through that. Because this could be an issue of real contention between believers today, that we somehow are violating the Sabbath because we don't meet on Saturday. That's one issue. But the other is that some believe that Sunday is the new Sabbath. I wholeheartedly disagree. There, in my opinion, is absolutely nothing in Scripture that gives that indication. I encourage you to go back and listen through those messages in John 5. John 5.16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. See that? I am working. My Father's working. I'm working. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So we've transitioned from where we left off last week under point number two, the one who wishes to do his own will discerns poorly. The one who is only attempting to exalt himself and do what he does based on his own authority, he discerns very poorly. Point three is the one who wishes to do God's will discerns rightly. This is what it comes down to. Is your desire for the will of God that you would, in fact, judge rightly. Well, here we are in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances. There are those who have misjudged the character of Christ. This is the critical issue. This is the context. This is the point. That he trusts the Father in his sovereignty, that he's going to bring to him whom he has determined to bring to him. 
for the Jews who in the moment were judging Jesus based upon their own authority, not upon the word of God. They had the law of Moses. They had the law of Abraham. But they rejected the spirit of that law. And they used it exclusively to tie up burdens for other people. Why do they do that? Here's why. And here's why people do it today. They do it because they want to be known for their own accomplishments. In particular, they want to be known for their own spiritual accomplishments. Let me just be clear. You're looking at a man who has zero spiritual accomplishments. Zero. But I am completely confident in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ based upon the sovereign decree of his Father, which then results in an impetus in my heart to obey him with a passion. Let me just confess before you that I fail. But the person who is committed, constantly committed to drawing attention to his own spiritual accomplishments is the person who has little or no interest in resting in the spiritual accomplishments of Christ. It ought to be that we would rejoice, that we would worship him in light of what he has done, in light of what he has accomplished. Back to Matthew 7 just for a moment to reflavor this idea of proper judgment. Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. That's the verse so many people who maybe consider themselves to be Bible scholars because they spent 15 minutes on the internet will often use, right? Oh, but verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Sounds very much like James, doesn't it? Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There is no taking the speck out of your brother's eye without judging your brother's eye. But proper judgment only comes after removing the massive mess in your own eye. And then this, do not give dogs what is holy. So there comes a point after which you have made substantial efforts to remove the speck from your brother's eye, your professing brother's eye, when you have faithfully and diligently removed the log from your own eye. The time comes where you must stop. You must no longer attempt to give what is holy to spiritual dogs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is church discipline. And I suggest that are we to have any lasting eternal impact as a local church, we will be faithfully and lovingly and graciously engaged in this process. Let's finish with this from 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 
But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and then this, and this is critical, having an appearance of godliness. Now think of Jesus' words commanding you and me to exercise judgment rightly, not wrongly. In that the Jews were so willing and so able to wrongly judge him when they had been in his presence, they had had the law of Moses, they had had the law of Abraham. What about you and me? We are commanded to judge rightly. In 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says they have the appearance of godliness, he says they deny its power. And then he says this, avoid such people. Brothers and sisters, it might be high time that you've moved on from some of the people that are polluting your life. And I'm not just talking about the person that makes things difficult for you. I'm talking about the person who professes to know Christ, and yet you continue to use your valuable time with that person rather than lovingly separating yourself from that person and pouring yourself into those who actually are committed to legitimate godliness. He says, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is very much, very, very much like the New Testament Jew, who is all about learning and never coming to the place of knowledge. Very similar to the Pharisees in Romans 10, where Paul says they had a zeal for God without knowledge. My hope is that the Lord would truly do a cleansing work in our church, a loving work, one that leads each of us with love and grace and compassion for the lost, in particular, the false disciple that we would exercise loving, gracious, gentle, merciful discernment, judgment, in such a way that that person would have a very, very honest and clear and biblical picture as to what it means to be committed to the truth. Father, we thank you for your word. And we plead with you now as we sing to you that you might further refine our hearts, that we might have the great joy of conversation after our worship service together to assess the degree to which we are, in fact, faithfully involved in a devotion to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be subject to your refining work in us, that we would not be the false disciple, the one who ultimately would turn away from the harder truths of your word, but that we would be humbled by them, that we would be strengthened by them, and that we would be used by them for your glory in the hearts and lives of 
the false disciple that we love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.